Hello, everyone. Welcome to Palladium Magazine's Digital Salon with Jan Talon. I'm Wolf Tyvey, Editor-in-Chief of Palladium. I'm joined by Ash Milton, Managing Editor. Hey, everybody. Uh, our special guest today is Jan Talon. Jan Talon is the founding engineer of Skype and Kazaa. He is co-founder of the Cambridge Center for the Study of Existential Risk and the Future of Life Institute, and philanthropically supports other existential risk research organizations. We interviewed Jan last summer, which you can find on our website. Great to see you again, Jan. Thanks for having me. So as usual, we're joined by our live audience of Palladium members and friends. This conversation will be recorded and rebroadcasted on YouTube and as a podcast. To become a Palladium member and get invited to upcoming salons, please visit palladiummeg.com slash subscribe. The plan is for Ash, Jan, and I to have a discussion for about half an hour and then move on to questions from the live audience. So make sure to use the Q&A function in Zoom to post your questions. So let's get started. There's a lot of, we're talking generally about the issue of existential risk from AI and, and I guess risk in general uh, from AI. There's a lot of uncertainty about how an artificial intelligence transition would play out technically and socially. Like for example, would there be a rapid takeoff? Um, there's other, a lot of these big uncertainties, a lot of different scenarios that have been discussed um, Jan, I'm curious, you've talked to a lot of smart people working in the field and obviously funded a lot of the research. Um, what's the current best picture of the impact and risks from artificial intelligence? I'm afraid there isn't a best picture. There is like this uh, uh, kind of mix of uh, many plausible uh, sounding pictures. Uh, hence, actually, also my own thinking has kind of evolved over the last 10 years from being like very sort of... Uh, I mean, sort of scenarios that were kind of avail available in the community thought space were kind of much more, uh, much much simpler, and kind of more concentrated on like uh, ideas like self uh, recursive self improvement, intelligence mm -hmm. explosion. I mean, they haven't kind of disappeared still, but now we have like more, I would say like. Uh, yeah, more complex models uh, that also mm -hmm. try to into take into account not just like uh, sort of like uh, theoretical properties of intelligence, but also try to think uh, into account of what are the social dynamics uh, and what are what are the kind of game theoretic considerations, etc. So like right. yeah, there is like very there's a whole spectrum of how okay. things could go wrong. So what's I mean, so there's the general, there's the kind of intelligence explosion, uh, recursive self-improvement argument where an AI could, you know, once we build some superhuman intelligence, it can build a better version of itself. Um, but what are the other kind of scenarios or complexities that have sort of been added to the, the question over the last 10 years? Is it, uh, and, and how is that related to kind of like progress that's happened in deep learning and, and AI research in general? Yeah, so like one uh, model that I have in mind, uh, and I don't see, I don't see, I think like many people are sort of like making a mistakes that doesn't take this into, model into account. The model I call, call uh, the drill and the city. I'm not sure if you talked about it in the interview, possibly. But the idea is that, that you have, have this, uh, you can imagine like a small, city or like some uh, industrial complex mm -hmm. uh, and in the in the middle of it is like a drill that that goes deeper into the into the ground right and basically what it corresponds to is that a drill is like a fundamental ai research that yeah. goes deeper and deeper into into sort of various uh, algorithms that uh, give you like optimization power and, and intelligence 
mm-hmm. ability to solve uh, cognitive tasks. You go from like a simple linear ex- extrapolation uh, to like uh, convex optimization mm-hmm. to like the latest stuff right, from from actually from two years ago like transformers, right? And then mm-hmm. you have like this uh, on above ground industry that basically takes the results of the fundamental AI research uh, that usually comes from uh, academia, uh, but also from groups like DeepMind, and then sort of productizes them uh, and kind of trains AIs for their own services. Now, almost entire AI safety and ethics industry in the world, in terms of like people count, is focused on what happen, happens above ground, because this is like the familiar thing. This is how the right. technology, technology, um, I don't know. Uh, how it like reaches of, uh, people. Yeah, how, how, to, how do you, yeah, exactly how, how technology usually reaches people and, and mm-hmm. how basically have to, we have to, that, that's what, what the, we have practice with. So the first uh, division I would say is like, are we talking about risks uh, that are mostly going to misuse of AI, either right. accidental or some kind of game theoretic reasons that you have this like powerful thing and now you're going to make it into services or like, products like, like face recognition or light detection, et cetera, that kind of like screw up things in a way that I, that is hard to kind of get out of. Or... You have something happening below ground, which is basically one way of looking at this. Is, is, is it uh, sort of like a social problem or are we going to have like a AI lab accident uh, that, uh, that actually before anything gets productized, we mm-hmm. just like get wiped out. We, somebody turns on the AI training machine in the evening and the world is not, no longer there in the morning. Yeah, right. You had a great example of this in the interview, I think. Uh, you mentioned a book called Avogadro Corp. Where, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the incident there is an AI that starts intercepting or creating emails, right? Exactly. And, and this is, uh, yeah, yeah I, so, I was just yeah. going to say that like, the, we have this AGI crisis, right, that people discuss. And yet mm-hmm. here, it's a very basic example, very basic program. It seems like there's a number of steps here where a lot of stuff can go wrong. And so I really yeah, yeah. like that example because it's a very yeah. everyday sort of problem. Exactly. So, so it's like, a, to people say like, like, why do we have, why, why are we afraid of like uh, uh, powerful AI? Like uh, it doesn't have like arms. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> look. Yeah, just like, push just the like, robot uh, over, dude. Come on. <laughs> or like, just like send an email to someone who has arms. <laughs> it's yeah. like an AI is perfectly yeah. capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure whether we can say anything then about like kind of what kind of future we would expect given AI, what, what that even means sort of like, you know, where our uncertainty is as large as like, are we going to have a sort of intelligence takeoff singularity or, or a just kind of, there's, there's just these more and more powerful machines around in society. They become sort of more and more cognitively dominant. These are kind of very different scenarios, but I'm wondering kind of, it seems that in the long term, you get a case where kind of uh, the, the majority of cognitive processing, the majority of intelligence being applied to the world is non-human and, and doesn't necessarily rely on humans for anything. And in that kind of future, there's this question of, well, what could still be valuable in that future? Like it, it's sort of hard to imagine that being compatible with human society in, in any kind of way as we understand it, or even humans as we understand ourselves. Um, I'm curious kind of how you see, like what's the successful kind of scenario for this? Is there a way to navigate that? I mean, first of all, I don't think very much about uh, sort of possible, like possible really positive scenarios uh, in the future. Not, not because I don't, think they are there but like i think it's more productive to kind of try to of uh, stabilize things and then like then gonna kind of have this like there's even like this concept uh in the effective altruist 
altruism community called long reflection so like uh, like our goal right now should be as some people call end the acute risk period and enter the era of long reflection where we actually gonna have time to think carefully about like what mm -hmm. do mm -hmm. we look want the rest of the history of universe to look like now if i were like kind of like put uh, like somebody like aims a pistol at me and says like okay now now decide the future the answer that i would give is that i would want the positive trends to continue <laughs> and like negative trends like not to continue uh, so like uh, let's 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 get a future where we will like uh, just everybody will get like a three percent smarter and three percent wealthier or like uh, something like that mm -hmm. uh, in terms of their ability to affect the world positively every year and then like see like where that venture takes us but it does yeah. seem like a lot of the um initiatives that humans want to do that would be another's level basically of our civilization right so settling another planet or finding some mm -hmm. unlimited source of energy these are inherently high risk and yep. so i i sort of wonder if it's possible to talk about ending acute risk in that way at least when we're at a stage where we're still doing very novel and exciting and civilization advancing so, things i mean that's uh, why i said like if you kind of like look at the recording of this like uh, i said that increasing the ability, people's ability to positively influence mm -hmm. the world uh, because indeed like technology is like neutral and if you just increase people's ability to affect the world well it will predictably end at some point. I'm curious, I guess I'm, what I'm getting... The thing is that you, you, can, you can actually use AI theoretically. So one, one sort of positive use of AI is to, I think what Ben Kurtzel calls it, nanny AI. So like AI that doesn't actually restrict human futures much, only by just like having sort of guardrails mm -hmm. uh, to make sure that mm -hmm. we're not going to drop off the off the cliff, basically. Do we have any uh, ideas about sort of technically or n not necessarily in full detail obviously we don't we have not solved the problem but but kind of broad sketches of how that kind of thing might be accomplished like how do you actually get an ai to be a nanny ai or get an ai to support uh a human civilization where people are continuing to get smarter and wealthier yeah so the, yeah. I, I mean we don't have answers here but like yeah. we have like some glimpses of a beginnings of where to look uh, so, like, there is this, like, debate that is, like, kind of actually acute uh, in, in AI circles, which is uh, capability of society versus privacy. Mm -hmm. And uh, FHI in Oxford actually has done kind of research, what they call into, research into what they call uh, structured privacy. And basically, like, this is, like, an example how AI could kind of uh, potentially work as a safeguard. So, what you could in a world where, like, everything kind of, systems work as intended uh, which is like a fantasy world but like perhaps there are good approximations uh, do is uh, have like pervasive surveillance of everyone but like nobody gets, actually gets access to the record record of, mm -hmm. uh, of what's being recorded uh, unless AI basically figures out it's actually in the interests of humanity to kind of make an alert yeah so I mean th then you have sort of uh, panopticon government by AI or, or, or with a, with some. Yeah, it's a slightly distinct, right? Because the, I was, I wanted to ask this as well. The panopticon is where everyone has access to everyone's data, more or less. Right. Uh, AI so. being able to read everyone, mm -hmm. like which of these is a better scenario in your mind? Like yeah, if, in my mind, definitely. It's like, I think the way I think about privacy is that it's, it's like a, it's a value. It's a, it's a currency. 
that mm-hmm. you get to spend, just like you can you can get to spend like a portion of your or income in taxes, right? Mm-hmm. And now, now, like ideally, you you uh, spend it on things, either donations or taxes, towards kind of organizations and groups that that can do something positive with it. So, like uh, one like this, like AI enabled panopticon, if it's like if it works well, is that you're gonna kind of, uh, pay the tax of potentially losing uh, privacy, but with like some non-humanly strong assurances that th- this will right. not th- this will not be abused to gain kind of differential power, yeah, gain yeah. differential power. So, so that it basically it relies on sort of being able to get kind of strong assurances about what exactly. an AI system is going to do and being able to trust yeah. it. Well and the enough. really cool thing is that unlike humans, it's totally in the realm of possibility to get get such kind of cryptographic assurances uh, yeah. because AI is a piece of code and like or we already know that is possible to get like cryptographic assurances, uh, like in terms of zero knowledge proofs yeah. uh, and like obfuscation, code of obfuscation. Uh, but if you look at, are, if you look at like the way deep learning works and the kind of the opacity of the systems it produces, like this, I'm just speaking like current AI technologies, yeah. which which sort of look plausible, plausibly involved in final AI. They're sort of at the opposite end of the spectrum from the formally verifiable sort of provable software. Like they're very, they, no, I think I think it's I think it's uh, uh, like t- there are two orthogonal axes. Like uh, for example, someone at DeepMind, Andrew Andrew Trusk. Uh, okay. Like he he has done uh, research into homomorphically encrypting uh, AI models. So you have like deep learning model, but like nobody can kind of uh, reverse engineer what this model looks like by using homomorphic encryption on the on the code that actually implements uh, the model. But, but I mean that that makes it sort of more opaque rather than. Less yeah, opaque. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, in the sense of like getting an assurance about uh, sort of the thing conforming to a hard specification. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is one it, of the I big mean, problems in software. But like one, th- one thing so that on. you can do is to have like wrap the AI in some kind of uh, uh, programmatic wrapper that kind of guarantees. I mean, again, assuming that the AI is not too powerful in the middle, guarantees some like uh, constraints over input and output. So, so mm. you can basically kind right. of reject every input that doesn't uh, fit certain criteria. Uh, and then like you have guarantees about what's happening in the middle as well. Mm-hmm. I want to um, ask you something else about the privacy question there too, which is there's a thing that seems to happen with privacy where if your information is public or at least public to a specific person or organization, they can basically read you, right? They can collect your data and analyze mm-hmm. you and make predictions about you. That People seem willing to do that provided they don't think that the reader is hostile. But yeah, yeah. Uh, if for political purposes, uh, they start viewing the reader as hostile, that's when conflict starts. So do you think it's in a way safer to have just like a central reader, if you want, where like in the panopticon, if everyone, if you know your neighbor knows a lot of things about you, then it might be much easier to create conflict between you and everyone else in the society. Yeah. So like, there's an interesting approach to privacy uh, that as far as I know, Estonian uh, healthcare digital healthcare repository applies. Uh, I mean, I, I talked to the people who implemented it, but I haven't actually investigated. Like, is it still the case 10 years later than I, than I, uh, than I was in the discussion? Uh, but, I, but it's a general principle that I think is a good one. It's basically like there is a way to reduce the abuse of uh, privacy violations by making that uh, you cannot remain private when you're doing so. Mm-hmm. So like basically like, uh, you, you have like audit, audit records. If, uh, so as far as I understand in Estonia, like all doctors can access like everyone's 
records because right. like, you might need that in order to save that person's life. You don't actually know in advance like who on who's like operating. This table. is like a permanent thing, not just for the pandemic. No, yeah, yeah. Does it, okay. As far as I know, it's, it's permanent. But again, like it's, it's something I haven't fact checked recently. It sure. was like something that I had was in discussions uh, with someone. Uh, but like whatever they do, like uh, the person who's being kind of looked at will know uh, because that will will be uh, available again. It's a principle that I know was in the consideration for Estonian, mm -hmm. uh, I think, and I would bet that it works now, but I haven't checked. Uh, but I do think this is an example of, of, uh, of a way to reduce the ability to do privacy violations. And you can do it in, in a way like that involves like blockchain, for example, that is actually very difficult. One, one problem with this approach is that you're always at the mercy of the system, like SysOp, the system operator that runs the like machines. Uh, and do like yeah. pull on Edward Snowden on you, but uh, uh, like if it if it actually is implemented in blockchain, it might even like block that hole. Yeah, well, the, the thing with regulating um, tech companies, for example, uh, or, or regulating any private entity that's reading you, is that mm -hmm. the regulator probably also needs to read you, right? You need to be legible to the yeah, regulator yeah, 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 too, yeah, 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 and yeah. so you know, do you think that we're in a situation where we're just picking the best or most virtuous form of centralized power? Or do you think that these, so, you know, cryptographic solutions are strong enough that we route around that somehow? I mean, the, the, the cryptographic solutions are just like in their infancy right now. But the exciting thing is that there's actually active research uh, going on right now because like blockchains have provided sort of active motivation uh, for a lot of people uh, mm -hmm. to kind of enhance the cryptographic primitives. And my hope is that they can kind of brought in uh, later when we would need to develop like, better models of, uh, I mean, cooperation in general, like uh, or coordination in general, and like kind of uh, privacy respecting uh, surveillance is like one example of uh, cooperation or coordination. Mm -hmm. So we seem to be living through a changing balance of power in the world. Uh, for example, with the rise of China and, and the United States having many problems this looks like it's kind of disrupting a lot of the institutions of global governance that have sort of formally had dominance over, or, or at least plausible, plausible hand in a lot of these questions. Um, do you see an AI arms race on the horizon or do you see these, these sort of like geopolitical instability kind of affecting the, the path of AI safety, basically? Uh, I mean, there's separate questions. Like one, one is oh, okay. like, uh, what about uh global governance institutions. I mean, one interesting thing is that like, for example, UN and I guess many others uh, kind of were established uh, after the last like uh, species-wide crisis, the World War II. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's like, I mean, the positive uh, outcome from this crisis, although I don't think the crisis is uh, nearly as strong as World War II was uh, as a motivator, uh, that there might be kind of new uh, coordination uh, first of all, it, there might be like new leaders that come out. Like one of the nice side effects uh, from wars is that you will get actually kind of reality respecting leaders uh, okay. as opposed to just like tr people who try to kind of uh, bend the reality to their words because they can't, can't win battles using that. And you need actually kind of uh, be in contact with reality uh, in order mm -hmm. to win battles. Uh, so like that might, the, 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 this crisis might actually surface some of those leaders and those leaders might organize, which is like, uh, I think, an uh, interesting prospect if it happens. So, and your second question was basically like arms races. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, it's, it's really, um, yeah, it's, it's not obvious to me like if, if this crisis has like kind of, uh, I mean, these this dynamics are already pretty strong. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not obvious which way this crisis 
uh, being like rather orthogonal uh, uh, to, to those dynamics uh, has like it, basically it has both positive and negative uh, effects. Like the most positive effect I see is again it is it is right now we are implanting a living memory of what a species-wide problem looks like. And we didn't like the people who still had that, they were like about to die uh, right. last year. So it's like, or like basically like the people who still like remember, uh, have a living memory of World War II. Uh, there are just like very few of those left. Yeah, well that, um, when we talked about creating that kind of knowledge, uh, you know, we had a salon recently where we were discussing nuclear power. And um, one of the things that came up was that when it comes to nuclear, because a lot of countries have moved away from it in various ways, the actual memory and like living tradition of how to properly manage nuclear power, which has the potential, you know, is an existential risk as well, is disappearing. And so maybe we think, well, AI is going to be around a lot longer than nuclear power. But do you think it's do you think that one of the important questions here is once we start figuring out how to solve these problems, we also need to make sure that the knowledge gets handed down or will AI just be so ubiquitous that people will know how to do this? Um, I mean, it really depends on like what the, what the future trajectory looks like. Uh, so like uh, it's totally possible that we will not get uh, hum- anything resembling human level AI in the next hundred years. It, at which point like we have to like really get our act together when it comes to like uh, governing, uh, governing the world and species uh, in the background of ever increasing, ever ever increasingly powerful technologies such as like yeah. biology, like biotech, synthetic biology, etc. Although I think it's like unlikely uh, that we will see many additional human generations before we will have the end of human era. So it's uh, in that mm-hmm. sense, uh, uh, I, I kind of my money literally is on, on that scenario that we are not very far yeah. from AI, from human level AI anymore, but I might be wrong. So and in, the, it, in this case, it's valuable to have people to think about like how to actually organize the species without the help of AI. Well, and so this, uh, go ahead, Wolf. yeah, so this brings us to another kind of interesting question, which is if we're going to have that AI transition in the you know medium term, you say sort of within generations, what does that do to the importance of all these other problems? Like you mentioned, kind of governance, getting getting our act together on, on governing ourselves and so on. Um, how much should the the specter of this, this AI transition impact our plans as people who care about society? Is it something like we have, there's a bunch of stuff we still need to do or, or especially need to do or which things are kind of more important and less important given that? Uh, that sort of future scenario. Yeah, so it's it's uh, yeah, like I said, there is uh, like a, a spectrum of uh, of futures, uh, and right now we kind of have to hedge our bets uh, because we really, really don't know what the AI timelines are and how the how other technologies are going to come along. Yeah, given that, uh, like, if I knew uh, that indeed, like, in the next twenty years, the human era will end and we we will have like kind of uh, AI. AI completely in charge of what happens next. Uh, yeah, many of the many of the otherwise very worthwhile problems like uh, fighting global global uh, poverty or or, or uh, trying to fix global warming, they just go out of window. So it's like uh, there there is there is no like given that, but it's it's like strong given, right? We don't know yeah. if that's true. But if it if it's true, then yeah, that, that doesn't make sense to to uh, focus on uh, such things anymore, even though they are worthwhile a priori. Now. 
that's it. There are still like some things that are sort of like uh, basic and robust uh, towards uh, different scenarios that, that are useful if we are in this like uh, AI trajectory or if we are in the, in the trajectory that doesn't involve like human level AI anytime in the future. Mm-hmm. And there, there are things like, uh, I think the most obvious thing that comes to mind is indeed uh, kind of your, your area, which is like governance and, yeah. uh, and global coordination and trying to ensure that we are, yeah, we are, we are not going to end up in some weird prisoner dilemma kind of situation where we just like mm-hmm. shoot ourselves in the foot as a species. Yeah. I mean, there seems to be a f- possible failure mode, right? Which is and it maybe equivalent to uh, your previous example about not thinking about specific AI failures because we're worried about AGI risk. And that's that we think that so many problems are no longer going to exist once we get this human-like AI that we stop actually trying to solve them. Yeah, that, that would and be a even existential ones uh, mm-hmm. like you know climate or nuclear or whatever it is. I mean, it still uh, makes sense to kind of specialize in the sense that like uh, like I am focused on long-term AI risk, but I totally acknowledge that that it might be just in vain. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think it's important that uh, people who who focus on other areas they they also have like similar mindset that they're kind of like. The, their job is like insurance policy against certain kind of future, uh, but it's not like a slam dunk thing that this thing will happen that they uh, work on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know we want to start getting to questions soon. I did want to ask you though, uh, before we started the salon, we've been chatting a bit about the generations question and mm-hmm. how, you know, very often generational dynamics play out such that a generation that has been in power for a long time stops understanding the magnitude of risks that they didn't have to deal with. Uh, could you just share a little bit about how you think about these questions? Yeah, I mean, I, as I mentioned uh, to earlier, it's, uh, I don't think like a lot about these questions. Uh, again, because of my focus on just like AI and especially the technical side of it because of my background, uh, AI safety. Uh, but I do think that there are like, I certainly see like evidence that there is uh, there is value in uh, having uh, kind of intergenerational uh, governance uh, structures. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so like one obvious example is like Estonia. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like we, we uh, yeah, when we kind of uh, ended the Soviet occupation, our first prime minister happened to be 32 years old. And uh, he was like, huh, I read like one book by Milton Friedman. And uh, I know this internet thing. Uh, and it's like, yeah, we're going to have like an e-country. <laughs> and mm. yep, so we did. So like, uh, and I expect like if some like old communist uh, would have been in power, like in many other uh, post-Soviet countries, then uh, that w- just wouldn't have happened. Yeah, then, like the succession question in practice becomes that uh, either you figure out how to get people into your institutions or at some point a crisis level event occurs and those people come in and usually the trust is not there. And so on the one hand, you can get disruption that can be valuable. On the other hand, you might lose knowledge uh, that has been hard won in the past. Yeah, so th- there's this yeah. really interesting relation to kind of the, the reality respecting leaders idea that you had earlier, which is mm-hmm. like, well, when, when, especially like when, when, you have a, when you have new people coming in or, or just like when you're thinking about who you want in the government, you definitely want some people with the long memory, with the wisdom the, the kind of like they've seen the stuff before, but you also want people, younger people kind of uh, in contact with the newer realities. It's this interesting kind of problem of how do you keep the, the institutions focused on, on the, uh, the reality of exactly. the situations they're dealing with. 
Also, I do think that like smaller countries like Estonia have it just much easier uh, because there isn't as much optimization pressure when it comes to uh, getting elected and becoming uh, near the top. Like basically US and like big countries in general are going to draw from a very large pool of people right. who want to be in the top, which means that they are sort of professional. Uh, they're like kind of, <laughs> perhaps even before they were born, uh, they had like this trajectory plotted out that they have to like uh, put us a lot of effort i mean in estonia that just doesn't happen like you have uh, people who are like have like a proper profession as well in, in addition to being a politician mm-hmm. and you think that's a matter of scale that's interesting yeah yeah so, so I, and also it helps helps in terms of like uh, like i'm not saying like that all governments have been like super good in estonia but like there's definitely like a more proximity between the population and the government because it's just literally closer in terms of geography right right uh, but also like in terms of like social distance yeah so let's start moving on to the questions from the audience uh we've got a lot of great questions that we should get to so pasha kamishev asks to what extent are problems in our society already due to aggressive over optimization of uh the wrong metrics or or certain metrics mm-hmm. such as like news or social media clicks um engagement i think we talked about oh yeah previously. yeah absolutely like the the uh, i think my long long time friend uh michael vassar once said that uh, that uh, uh well and at the end of the day everything comes down to the problem of non-human optimizers and like uh, you can think of corporations as non-human optimizers yeah uh, and uh, and indeed like we have had a lot of problems with corporation i would argue that we still have like uh, one of some of the some of the most plausible scenarios of uh, realized realized ai risk is that corporations who by nature are incentivized to downplay the risk of the externalities that they create yeah. as we've seen from like environmental uh, issues in the past uh, they uh, they basically and we already know already see like the biggest kind of uh, skeptical voices when it comes to AI safety come come from big corporations and I think that the dynamic is there that's just incentivized yeah. to to work a work on AI and b downplay the risks. This um, is interesting because it's it's related to that like this problem of non-human optimizers. It's related to the problem of governance in the sense that yes. it's actually quite difficult to construct a human optimizer that has enough like scale to to be significant like what what does it mean to kind of get a lot of people organized together in some institution that's able to wield power while still kind of being in some sense governed by by holistic human judgment that's that's one of the problems we worry about yeah it is it is a question that kind of bottoms out in mechanism design i would say uh so like uh there are like i mean i over i mean i've thought a little bit over over this and talked to people who are like think way more like uh, Glenn Weil from Radical Exchange is that like it's possible now that we have like blockchain, for example, uh, that now that we have like ability to do global coordination without asking anyone's permission. Uh, it's like, although obviously it has like many downsides, a lot of speculation, et cetera, et cetera, but it's a new capability that the world didn't have before. And it's possible that we can kind of like bootstrap some new governance uh, mechanisms uh, from it. So like one particular sort of like science fiction idea that I have is that uh, can we just like disentangle uh, the preference discovery and preference promotion, I call it. So the idea like in a democracy, you have like both in the same thing, like you, you, you elect a person 
because you think that they are going to like uh, execute the policy that you that you happen to like uh, mm-hmm. or like think you like, etc. But but ideally, uh, as we've seen in many kind of uh, there's like a conflict between let's put it that way. I think Robin Hanson somebody says like you should vote on your values and bet on your beliefs. And yeah. So like if you kind of disentangle this thing, what the world what would looks like what the world would look like. I'm thinking of things like hard to tamper random selections, uh, random polls. I mean, blockchain space thinks a lot about how to, how to do uh, polls because of their own governance uh, questions. Uh, and perhaps you can use blockchains to like random polls in like different communities or, or perhaps even worldwide that are very hard to tamper with. And we just ask people a question like, how are you, how are you feeling? And then we aggregate this data and we get like a global happiness index. Uh, and now, now we basically can make uh, prediction markets to, to bet on the influence of different policies on this particular objective metric. So like this is like a one, one, one idea, like that, that an example of a mechanism design that might actually be better than anything that we, that we invented like a few thousand years ago, like, like uh, sort of like representative democracy. So another question, Jeff Anders asks, lots of groups, both AI companies and AI safety advocates have an incentive to exaggerate uh, the actual pace of AI capacity research. Uh, but there's sort of there's some studies coming out that show that many of the apparent advances aren't uh, as real as they're being claimed. Given this, how should we, especially outsiders to AI who are trying to remain informed, track the actual progress of AI capacity research? Yeah, this is like very very difficult question. Uh, uh, and like my my sort of like first answer is just like uh, I don't think we can. It's like like people some people. I mean, first of all, it's it's valuable to invest. In, in research that tries to kind of make the make the picture clearer, that's why I'm supporting an organization called AI Impacts, for example. They have done like a bunch of research in that space, uh, but also it's just like important to keep our uncertainty uh, uncertainty open and not like kind of uh, uh, double get into into this uh, confirmation bias uh, loop where you're kind of uh, uh, see an advancement uh, in a press release and think like, see, I told you. But uh, but also like there there are like undeniable trends like uh, trends in hardware that are like very objective you can you can actually measure like, how how what what the how much compute becomes available uh, to AI additional compute com- becomes available for AI training every year and you can yeah. compare that to the amount of compute that human brain uh, plausibly does and I think for most plausible models I think we are already beyond human brain uh, in that I mean not all models but. But mm-hmm. I think that some of the pl- most plausible ones uh, say that supercomputers are no more powerful than human brain in terms of operations per second. One of the ways um, that I've heard about that we should maybe think more about what automation is real, uh, this came from Robin Hansen, uh, was that we talk about these things in a very abstracted way. And Hansen had the view that we should basically look more at actual industries. Um, so let's not talk about AI in general, but about some particular instance of an industry doing something with AI or with some other form of automation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think that that's a more useful way like to concretize what's actually going on and what's real? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I do think that it is like, it really helps with the above ground part. It doesn't help much what's happen, happening down, like down, like yeah, down in the, in the, yeah, beneath the, the ground in this, in this model, like in the AI labs uh, of fundamental AI research. Uh, but yeah, like if you're just like trying to assess things from the economic perspective, and as far as I know, like everything is like everything an economic perspective for for Robin Hanson. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, he's, he's a great guy and a friend. But uh, but yeah, I think he has like economic lens 
on all the time. So, mm. so, uh, so yeah, I do think that it's uh, like it gives you like very valuable data when there's like a lot of incentive for people to exaggerate uh, their the capabilities of their technology. Uh, then you basically can call call them on that and say like like so how what actual uh, thing you're doing with it. Interestingly, like uh, for like ten years, I was in the in this uh, automatic automated trading uh, business. Uh, I was trading on NASDAQ for 10 years, uh, developing code uh, to do that. And then I was a part of a community. And I saw like the same thing there, like people were trying to sell their systems. And I was like, yeah. wait, why are you selling a system that works, right? So it's like... Uh, right, because you yeah, just make money I, by using it directly on the market. Exactly. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like and, and getting some leverage scheme or whatnot, doing a fund or whatnot. But like, so like in some ways, like uh, I think the AI... Hype. Sometimes people are just incentivized to take their Excel table and and uh, and hype it as a next generation AI. Well, you can think of two versions of what companies are doing, and the one part is actual internal R and D. There's some specific problem to be solved, and they're bringing in people to try and come up with a solution. The other is that they're adopting systems hyped to them by you know automation consultants, and oh, yeah. uh, they're they have to then look for problems to solve because some advocate in the organization. Um, either bought into hype or maybe had a lobby interest or something like that. And maybe this yeah. is where we see a lot of the fake trends occurring. Yeah, one, one kind of joke I have about Robin Hanson, he's like, he's uh, like a, I think he has like computer science and physics degrees. Like, uh, and say like it's a physics, professional physicist who became professional economist who became professional cynicist. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's like, and I think, think he's, he's like super cynical and, and they're, a lot of his cynicism comes from the observations that, that organizations really aren't the things that you're going to naively expect them to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, organizations are much less of a mechanism than they are an organism uh, mm-hmm. and like a political structure rather than mm-hmm. some kind of like cooperative thing. So like, yeah. Yeah, well, people could over A lot of, lot of, very lot of weird yes. things happen in, in, in organizations. So like mm-hmm. so, whenever I invest in, in companies that, that have like business to business or like enterprise products, I, I can always go like, do you really know what's what's going on like within your customers? Mm-hmm. And if they like give me a good story, it's like, okay, you know what's going on. <laughs> here's, right, here's right, money. Right. <laughs> so Chelsea Voss asks, certain fields such as lab chemistry and aerospace engineering share a concept of safety culture um, mm-hmm. instead of social norms and incentives, which encourage researchers and managers to put safety first before research speed and before launch decisions. For example, like SpaceX's uh, launch scrub last Wednesday uh, is, is a good example of this. Uh, how much might this kind of thing help? Uh, how much might it help to unify current AI research under a common safety culture? What that, might that look like? What would it yeah, solve? Yeah, I mean, would it, it would solve? help. I would expect it to help a lot. Uh, I have no idea how to do that. In fact, like okay. I see like opposite trend, uh, like as the software is eating the world uh, along with that, like the loose safety culture of software development. Right. So yeah. like uh, as- uh, Move fast when, and break things. Yeah, a friend of mine, uh, uh, David Tarempel, uh, he, he basically observed that, uh, well, we should expect like the aviation industry. I mean, that was pre-crisis. Now, the, who knows what happens post-crisis. Aviation industry become like less and less safe uh, because like software is taking over. Mm. Right. Yeah. I mean, we've seen this with with the oh, yeah. 737 crash uh, exactly. where, where basically it was shoddy software built the way all software is built, which is terribly... Exactly. So if you could kind of reverse that trend and, and uh, insert like safety culture 
into AI companies. Yeah. I mean, when I was at DeepMind, I was a, on their uh, board of directors. Like one of the, my missions was to kind of like, I was really worried about the culture yeah. like, uh, and uh, really wanted to bring in kind of safety people from, on, on the ground floor. And now they have like, they're like, they have like a proper safety team. Although like, it's a kind of question which I don't know, like how well they are kind of integrated. Right. Probably, I don't expect them to be very well integrated. So is that question more about we don't know what proper safety culture looks like and how to do it? Or is it more like we know roughly what we need to do? We just can't socially get people to do it, given the organizational incentives. Yeah, yeah. I think it's leather. Uh, so okay. like, again, like aviation, commercial aviation has like a stellar track record uh, when it comes to safety and, and, and it, because they have like very harsh feedback loop, whenever there's a, yeah, there's like a safety failure, they get like a lot, lot of bad feedback uh, from it. So it's like, there's like, yeah. a, they just grew to be super safe. Uh, well, someone but, mentions like, in software, the chat, someone mentions in the chat, aviation and chemistry obviously had their risky, uh, dangerous experimental phase at the beginning yeah, where yeah, there were yeah. a lot of crashes and, and experiments also, gone wrong. Also, interestingly, uh, I think Stuart Russell makes this point that uh, that uh, uh, nuclear power industry sort of like uh, killed itself uh, by downplaying the risks and, and not kind of addressing them in, in time. So, mm-hmm. so like, uh, and basically he, he wants to avoid the same thing with, with AI industry. Right. Uh, so like right now, there's a lot of like downplaying of risks in AI, just like there was in nuclear power. Right. Industry. And then there might be an accident and everyone. Exactly. Everyone's everyone, like, like just. No, we're shutting it all down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's the risk of safety creep, right? Um, there, there seems to be this problem where we obviously want safety on, on failures with very high levels of consequence. So if a rocket blows up or a plane crashes yeah. and people die, we want to have a precautionary principle there. On the other hand, you know, there are certain risks we perhaps want to take. Like if a rocket blows up in testing with no one on it, maybe this is an acceptable risk. But it yeah, seems sure. very hard to actually balance this because you have a, a safety bureaucracy that seems to necessarily arise. And mm-hmm. then you have the natural path of bureaucratic creep start occurring. Yeah, so like one thing that I, certainly as I get older, I get like more appreciative of uh, bureaucracies. <laughs> so right. it's like... Uh, uh, I kind of, uh, every once in a while, I kind of see, like, I mean, I've been kind of involved with Oxford and Cambridge uh, for the last 10 years in, in various, in their various uh, centers that I support. And like, there's a lot of bureaucracy. And I go like, yeah, but like, if there wasn't like this and that kind of exploit would be possible, right? So like, right. we have to kind of think about like, what, what this bureaucracy, uh, I mean, it introduces a lot of friction that can be frustrating given the context that you have. But if you didn't have that context, and thought of all, of like all sorts of circumstances that they have to handle, then like uh, bureaucracy might have been like the like very natural answer. Yeah, yeah. Competency and goals of the bureaucracy seem to be the important thing, which is yeah, why yeah. I specifically mention bureaucratic creep. Uh, yeah, yeah. But but, so, but, but again, it it, has, it is a costly thing, right? So it's mm-hmm, yeah. it's like there's like trade trade off uh, trade off thing happening there. So James Dema asks. Uh, when we consider the risks of existential risk from artificial intelligence, is that comparable to the kind of risks we get from um, autonomous intelligence agencies? Like an intelligence agency within the government tends to sort of amass a lot of information and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and power in, in sort of a relatively unaccountable way, uh, and, but you still want it to kind of remain accountable. You want it to uh, 
to, to be stably aligned. Mm-hmm. Are there advances in AI risk management that, that look promising for intelligence agency management or vice versa? Is there like, is there an interesting relationship between those problems as you've seen? Well, I mean, sort of like put it bluntly, once the human error ends, the intelligence, human intelligence agencies, just like any other human institutions are not going to matter. Yeah. Uh, but that's but I mean, like before, before then. Yeah, before yeah, then. yeah. I, I, I mean, it comes down to the same agent principle uh, problem, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because like uh, intelligence agencies are supposedly principles, oh, sorry, agents of, uh, of their respective governments. Yeah, uh, and they do have like host of in- host of like uh, agent principle problems. So I do think that there's uh, because of the one way of looking at this. Of uh, I mean, one very highly abstract, but I do think a very robust way of looking at the entire AI long-term AI risk is that we are in the process of delegating human uh, decisions to machines, uh, and like we have this control. Whenever you delegate something, you're you're also yielding control. Yeah, uh, and uh, mm-hmm. and so like we had this, this uh, slider that is kind of diminishing over time, which is like how much control we still have over the future, and like there might be kind of catastrophic drops in that uh, once we have things like uh, yeah, AI developed technology, for example, we no longer mm-hmm. control of the technological output of our of our civilization. Uh, so uh, and I do think that the same thing applies to like uh, other places where there's uh, where there is uh, agent principle problems such as uh, uh, governments. And, and like vice versa, there might be some interesting learnings uh, while we're trying to solve how to do like safe delegating to machines that could be also be applied in governance. Um, Chelsea Voss asks, Victoria Krakowna recently examined some parallels between the coronavirus pandemic and a slow AI takeoff scenario, in particular huh. highlighting the, the question of competent institutions as a necessity for both pandemic preparedness and a, a slower AI takeoff. How do you think the institutional landscape influences AI risk right now? Um, where would you suggest that AI researchers on the ground focus their institutional reform efforts? Like, I guess, particularly, this is getting at kind of, we've seen a lot of institutional rot uh, revealed yeah. by the coronavirus thing, uh, which obviously bears on the AI risk question. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just, it's just correct. <laughs> if you want to kind of uh, navigate the future, you should have like competent uh, coordination mechanisms uh, mm-hmm. and, and competent governments are are uh, an example of that. So, like, even so, that's why I'm like kind of uh, being like I'm literally in the middle of US and China uh, yeah. in Estonia. Uh, I do think that uh, I mean, China is seems to be handling it uh, much more competently than the US, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not really a surprise to me. <laughs> it should be like uh, to anyone yeah. really, right? Uh, because of the yeah, I mean, one sort of I mean, I, I've grown up uh, in, in a communist country and, and uh, in a like, highly centralized thing. And it's, it's, not a, it's not something that I would recommend to people, <laughs> but right. especially, in US, especially in Soviet Union, that was way worse than China. China has been like, from Deng Xiaoping, etc. But, but yeah, the, the centralized totalitarian governments definitely have like, uh, certain advantages when it comes to kind of coordinating responses, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. national responses. Well, and when it comes to the pandemic, it seems like one of the things that occurred was that the countries we look at now as having had very good early responses, um, Taiwan, Korea, uh, Singapore, and so on, their national, um, you know, their CDCs, their national health agencies, um, pretty much made their own judgments on the policies to carry out, 
whereas a lot of Western countries more or less outsourced decisions to uh, the WHO and other international organizations. And so I think that this is an interesting question because uh, the pandemic has shown that you pretty much, if you try and outsource judgment questions to some other party, you're not escaping the judgment question. You're just oh, yeah. trying to dodge it. And so in, in AI, right, there's this constant temptation to reduce judgment to algorithm, more or less. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, like, do you think that there's a useful way of recentering the human judgment question when we talk about these, these issues around AI? Sorry, what do you mean by recentering? L- like, um, you know, I think even when we're discussing um, the questions of centralization, the instinct is to say, well, there are these technologies that exist which can allow us to protect privacy or which can allow us to stop people from getting our information. Um, we don't generally answer by saying that we should create a culture of people who are running these institutions that follows norms that we want to see happen, right? So actually look at the people who are creating these technologies and ask how are they developing and implementing them? Um, Like, do you think that this is an overlooked uh, question here? I'm sure, I'm not still sure I understand. Do you mean like the the technologies inserting their values? uh, Yeah, exactly. So, so, you know, you, you might have someone who sees the primary use of uh, machine learning as being like facial recognition or something in the security mm-hmm. state. And rather than, you know, maybe we start answering, oh, here are other technologies we can, which can guard against this, rather than saying, well, why don't we ask why um, so many people see this as the immediate use of the technology, which is a question of human judgment, right? Yeah. Like maybe this, maybe this is yeah. um, too much of an aside, but... Uh, we don't have to stay on it too long if you think there's a more or more useful. Yeah, I think I would just like fall here. back to my default answer that like uh, sort of governance is hard uh, and it's kind of valuable to to uh, try to develop mechanisms that that try to take into account things like uh, Rousean uh, veil of ignorance. Uh, so like you, you're you're not going to yeah you, you're developing a mechanism without actually knowing which part in the mechanism you will you will play and, mm-hmm. and then like if you can do it in a way that is kind of credible i think that's a good move uh, from technologists yeah uh, yeah rather than saying like, like so, just sign up to our service yeah so um another interesting question from chelsea what technical or yeah what technical advances in ai safety would make you the most excited uh to see happen next what what things are sort of uh, the biggest open questions that might might get solved and would be exciting? Yeah, so there are many. So, uh, I, like on uh, high level, like if there would be like interesting uh, ways to constrain, like it, generally, I think that's that's research right is kind of like limited impact AIs or like mild optimization, like other ways to to actually kind of uh, for the lack of the word cripple uh, the AI in a way that kind of actually Make sense. So I could like uh, not get like a run or some kind of runaway effect in the world uh, right. while still kind of uh, doing some useful things. Then right. there and are yeah it, some it, open open AI and Paul Cristiano are looking into into this like uh, iterated distillation amplification where how can you use uh, like a group of uh, like lesser AIs to constrain a stronger AI and then like iterate 
because like humans seem to be able to do that. Like uh, we, we might have like super high IQ people, but they're not going to take over the entire world that easily. Uh, although some of them mm. have come close. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's, uh, uh, but yeah, if, if you could like get like pretty solid understanding of, of, uh, of how, yeah, how constraining AI uh, mm-hmm. works, either using other AIs or some other constraints. That would be very cool. The limited impact question is interesting, uh, like whether that's even possible, so to speak. It, it's, the, I guess the, the formulation of the problem is that even with a relatively innocuous goal, like, you know, prevent car crashes or something, if you apply enough optimization power to that question, you end up with something that's potentially quite dangerous because it starts going and, and finding ways to accomplish that goal yeah, eliminate uh, beyond, cars beyond is an obvious the, way. Eliminate cars, eliminate drivers yeah. <laughs> is like yeah, obvious, uh, right, high or, power optimization uh, yeah, solution or, to that. Or take control of everything else to make sure that you know we're applying enough computing power to this problem or something. That, that seems that's harder than word. kill everyone. <laughs> yeah. Kill everyone seems to be here. Right, right. Easy. It maybe is the easiest route, uh, but certainly not our intended uh, exactly. result. Yeah, so, so there's like this general problem that like once you start applying more and more optimization power to something that makes sense to you, you will get like bad edge, edge cases that will kill you. Yeah, yeah. Are you? Uh, do you see a possible? route to solution there or, or ways that might that might actually get solved or is that something that's like it would be a nice to have but not necessarily expecting it i don't know i have like a double digit uncertainty there uh, okay. it's uh, i mean people are looking into that and and uh, yeah, some of the institutes that i'm supporting are are doing research uh yeah in, in mild optimization limited impact uh, space also deep mind i think has uh, their safety team has done particular in victoria Krakonna, i know has at least one paper, uh, if not more, in limited impact topic. Mm-hmm. Shall we move to the next uh, question? Yeah, yeah, I'm just uh, trying to figure out which question is the best one for next. Yeah, Paul Cristiano is awesome. I see the comment. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. He's definitely uh, like one of the, I would say, like one of the top three uh, AI safety researchers in the world. Yeah, I, I think Travis's question might be interesting here because it touches on the safety discussion. So he's asking, um, when it comes to actually building more safety mechanisms in foundational AI work, what are some of the obstacles to building this? Um, so he says, this is the drill in your city versus drill analogy. Uh, sorry, what are the obstacles for? The obstacles for, to building in more safety mechanisms in foundational AI work. Oh, I mean, the main obstacle is just psychological. It doesn't feel dangerous. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, if you would get like a, 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 a yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's not obvious like what the, what it would take to, for this to actually feel dangerous in a way that uh, aviation engineering uh, feels dangerous to the engineers or like mm-hmm. uh, yeah, mistake, making mistakes in, in uh, spaceship construction feels dangerous to SpaceX engineers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, yeah, I think that this is the, the, the main obstacle right now that, that psychologically seems just, just programs. Do you yeah. think that there's a concern with um... You know, I mean, we see abuses that end up uh, taking, you know, a, a toll on even human life all the time, like mining or uh, any any number of industries. Do you think that... I mean, the biggest one is healthcare industry, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, I, I guess my question, like, my follow-up to this is, okay, say that it is technically feasible to introduce some safety mechanism. 
do you think that in general the institutions doing this research are like committed to this or is there still a hesitation um, or, or maybe some people who think that certain dangers are just worth it because of the end result being so spectacular? I mean, the, the sort of the uh, tip of the drill organizations that I'm familiar with to some degree, DeepMind and OpenAI, uh, they are definitely like kind of uh, leading examples in a good sense that they do have internal discussion about safety and uh, like people are not uh, actively hostile to towards a safety idea unless unlike so many some some other uh, kind of corporate cultures uh, that are doing ai safety research so uh, so there's like a cultural commitment here in the institution yeah i do think so and and in some ways I, i'm really kind of glad that DeepMind and open ai uh, exists in their form just because of this cultural thing like they are like high status members of the ai research community mm-hmm. uh, and like already have gotten kind of uh, of uh, meeting requests uh, from AI labs who want to be with the big boys and want to know what what to do about safety, uh, in order to kind of qualify for the for the league. Uh, so I think that hopefully there will be like more uh, dynamics like that in the in the future. Yeah. So uh, another question from Pasha: Culturally speaking, software development as a whole feels like it's <coughs> failed to acquire that culture of safety. I mean, we talked about this a little bit with. Uh, move fast and break things ethos uh, compared to like bridge building and uh, Mm -hmm. other forms of engineering and and a lot of software feels broken. Do you see this changing either through kind of different programming practices or different cultural practices? What are the kind of route for that changing in in software development or in AI? There's definitely like a lot of uh, subcultures in software that are kind of have very acutely realized uh, this problem. Mm-hmm. and uh, are working on things like, I mean, one very good example here is the programming language of Rust that I think has its its roots uh, in this uh, problem that uh, the software we're developing is too fragile. So like Mozilla team uh, yeah. actually kind of said, okay, we need to make our browser robust. How can we do that? Ah, none of the existing languages qualify. So let's invent a new language. So they did. So it's it's an example of a good example, I think, uh, of uh, this like safety going back to the first principles when it, when it comes to uh, mm-hmm. safety, safety in software. So hopefully there will be more of like that uh, in the future. Thomas has an interesting question here that I'd like to ask. I'm going to reword this slightly. Um, he's also asking about the optimization and safety theme. And he's pointing out the phenomenon of reinforcement learning. So, you know, AI can be vulnerable to things like uh, counterfeit utility or reward hacking. And there's a thing that happens where people can be trained to act in ways which are detrimental to themselves. You know, maybe a version of this would be on social media, right? You you get the biochemical hit by scrolling through social media. But we also know that things like depression start spiking. And particularly with, say, teenagers, um, you can see pretty dire consequences. Um, Do you think that that kind of human incentive hacking is a genuine risk? Uh, when it comes to the way AI is implemented? Oh, yes, absolutely. So there's like, there's like very interesting tension between kind of two uh, schools of thought in AI safety. One is that we want to make AI super aligned with humans so they would like know everything about humans in order to actually do the things that we really, really wanted if we were smarter to ask, <laughs> right? And, and then there's the other school of thought is like, no, no, like stay away from human modeling. Like don't, 
Like ideally make AIs that aren't even aware that they're humans. And because and their motivated concerns indeed are the manipulation uh, scenarios where you just end up creating an AI that's just super good at manipulating humans. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is that the AI would basically be incapable of um, optimizing human behavior in a way that we would actually want. Like there's too many variables involved. Yeah, yeah. So like there are definitely valuable AIs, I mean, already out there, right? That, that have no idea that humans exist. exist. Mm -hmm. And it's possible that you're mm -hmm. going to scale up them. Like, I mean, somebody, I think it was at Miri or, or, or somewhere, gave this example. Like imagine that you can, imagine a task of putting a one kilogram, uh, transporting one kilogram of matter from uh, uh, Earth to the moon. Like, like theoretically, you can do it without like any, awareness of humans existing mm -hmm. and so it's a just pure engineering objective engineering task and there are many other tasks like that that are but super valuable i guess the difficulty of that is when you start to apply enough optimization power it starts to marshal enough resources that it oh yeah, yeah. impinges I mean, on I, us like, <laughs> or, or all, discovers all the, all us the, and become, become a problem all, all roads lead to rome right <laughs> yeah 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 everything <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but some of them yeah. might, might be like more 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 dangerous than the others, and and like the, mm -hmm. the route of like making AI very aware of human human preferences and humans, indeed, like while actually having a good end goal and good kind of end game, uh, it might, has like some unique dangers on the way. Well, and the thing with AI is that you know you're saying be aware of humans, but you know for, for any AI program, being aware of humans is not the same way we're aware of humans. It's that they are seeing a, a particular collection of incentives or of data and are trying to work with them in some way. And so it reminds me a bit of the way that corporations are aware of humans, right? They're not aware of people, they're aware of human resources, which is a very different thing. Yeah, um, they're aware of their, they're aware yeah. of patterns in their environment. <laughs> yeah, well, and, <laughs> and the same way that- patterns are, might be kind of like uh, results of human activity or humans yeah. themselves. Well, and the same way that we see, um, obviously in some cases, View, you know, you have to view people as human resources to a degree because you want to optimize your organization to achieve its goals. But on the other hand, there's obviously like a million different abuses that can arise um, from that fact. Or, you, you know, you, you create institutional cultures which end up grinding people down. The difference is that there are still people running corporations. So theoretically, it might be possible to convince shareholders or owners to do things differently exactly so with like an ai uh, there's no convincing to be done yeah and like there is this fascinating concept by i think i heard it first from scott alexander of slate star codex fame uh mm. the idea of uh how was it uh ascended ascended economy uh the idea is that uh, once you have uh fully automated corporations with no humans in the loop you might actually get stable loops in economy, like business to business to business loops where no humans make decisions. Mm. So like you can imagine like a simple loop between a corporation, fully automated corporation that uh, is doing mining and fully automated corporation that is doing like develop, like manufacturing mining robots. And they just do business with, it, with, with each other while kind of increasing in power. And the result, the ultimate result of that would be that the universe would be turned into tiny mining robots which from our yeah. perspective would be basically equivalent to paperclips. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess the advantage is that if AIs run other AIs, we maybe care a little less about them being re-engineered and optimized in different ways, but then we're even, we're now twice removed from the well, I mean, yeah, of well, what well, humans I, actually I, want. I, I care 
greatly about myself and my children not being turned into tiny mining robots. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sure. Uh, so, so Misha Guervich asks, do you know if the NSA has any policy with regards to AI development or the prevention of, of dangerous AI development or, or any other kind of uh, major government, government agency? Yeah, I have really no idea. Um, we don't have a lot of visibility into that. Yeah, I don't think, yeah. Yeah. But the, the closest I've got is like just talk to some people who are doing like DARPA uh, contracts, but like there's like a very varied, like very mixed mixed bunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pasha has another interesting question. Um, so a lot of these AI problems, like utility or uh, optimizing rather utility functions, have um, you know the same question exists in other social sciences. So in, in economics, we might ask how do we measure what societies are better than others, which are more productive than others? So uh, based on that, Pasha is asking to what extent, you know, I, I'm going to reframe this slightly um, to be more personable to you. What bodies of thought, what sciences, what social sciences have you found most useful in contributing to these questions of AI risk? Like I think economics. economics yeah. Economics. By far economics. Yeah, just like kind of solid economics that done with, uh, with, uh, with like mathematical models uh, and mm-hmm. kind of try to think about incentives and the agent principle problems, etc. I mean, that said, at the end of it, it's still going to bottoms out in computer science. So it's, right. it's like uh, if you're saying things that are not compatible with the computer science of it, then you're wrong uh, when it comes to AI. Should economists uh, who want to work on these problems maybe figure out how to translate their discipline into comp sci research. Like in all of these fields, I imagine there's a yeah. lot of information that is just not visible to people mm-hmm. working the AI space. You know, they aren't around those communities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is there any field that you would want to know more about that you aren't familiar with? Uh, that I would want to know more about. I mean, my first uh, knee-jerk reaction would be economics. But uh, yeah, I also like find it, I mean, perhaps it's just like too interesting uh, rather than super useful, but I do also think it's super useful. But I think it's like, there's like a very fertile re- uh, sec- kind of cross section or like intersection between computer science and philosophy. Uh, so like one, uh, as I think Daniel Dennett has said that the computers keep philosophers honest, uh, like really, I think there are like super valuable uh, philosophical problems that we would benefit from having solved uh, and uh, solved in the sense of having computer code as a solution. Uh, so uh, so this this is something that uh, I would like to see like way more research. Uh, just like, yeah, think how do you do like, uh, how do you do uh, value aggregation? How do you, what, what does it mean to have like, uh, how do you weigh agents? <laughs> like uh, if you have like two identical copies. So yeah. Uh, yeah. I, it, I, I just sorry, I just wanted to before, add something on the economics question because I, I, mm-hmm. I studied economics myself and mm-hmm. th- there's a thing that um, I think has happened where you know a, a lot of things that economics does usefully ends up putting it very deeply in touch with other fields and so you know mm-hmm. questions of incentives in microeconomics might be very close to computer science nowadays um, but there's also things like uh, what we would call politi- political economy, where you're looking at institutional analysis. And this obviously ends up being closer to things like history. It, the, the thing that's useful about a lot of these 
like the AI-focused institutions, but also I think a lot of other Bay Area organizations is that they've let um, people from disciplines that otherwise don't interact with each other start interacting with each other. And, you know, just because there is so much information out there, there is um, a very simple translation problem, uh, which is how do you get people from completely different fields understanding, like not just understanding what else is out there, but why it's useful to them. Yeah, based um, ontology yeah. mismatches. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, I, I'm thinking here of other, you know, problems in history. You know, we mentioned nuclear and things like this. When we undertook the transition from nuclear, nuclear weaponry to nuclear power and energy, um, or, or in the space race, for example, there were cultural elements to this, there were technical elements to this. These sorts of projects have a way of bringing people together because there's a specific goal that has to be achieved or a problem that has to be solved. Um so anyway, I, I just sort of wanted to put this out there as uh, to the audience as well as an opportunity for people who have been interested um, in those kinds of questions. Yeah, I think there's like a trade-off uh, between, yeah, because what, what you already said, like trying to bring in, like the benefit of bringing in like new perspectives uh, and the cost of uh, paying the communication uh, issue and, and, and the risk of ending up with something that is just like too human specific and doesn't generalize to AI. So like, I think a lot of economics, economics is just uh, too human specific to be relevant for post-human era. But like some of it isn't, some of it might be very relevant. Mm -hmm. So I, I have one more question following on some of that discussion we were having earlier about how corporations as kind of non-human intelligence uh, or, or some people call them like sociopaths, um, mm -hmm. how they end up sometimes abusing people uh, there's sort of an interesting counterpoint that can be raised, which is that usually the ways, uh, the, if you really examine kind of um, the incentives to, to treat people well in terms of forming good relationships and so on, the, the result, like sometimes it's abusive, but very often the, what we consider to be sort of good virtuous behavior actually falls out of a totally uh, material analysis of the incentives. Mm -hmm. And so there's this way that you might kind of account for human values and, and the things we consider to be virtuous as just these uh, kind of accumulated wisdom about what works, about how to interact with each other in ways that actually work well. Um, and, and that kind of perhaps could put the, the things we consider to be valuable on a firmer footing than, uh, than, than just sort of arbitrary preference. And that way, like, is you're, a cause for hope. So you're, you're basically touching probably the one, of, one of the most interesting things that I've ever been exposed to in the last 10 years, which is like, uh, is moral realism true? Right. <laughs> it's like, and true I mean, in like a technological sense, like there are things yes. that actually work. Yes. So like, uh, I, 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 the way I would put putting it is that, uh, that, I mean, Josh Green has this book uh, called Moral Tribes. And the idea is that ultimately ethics and morality bottoms out in game theory. Right. Uh, like the, the, uh, the tribes that uh, ended up like promoting the morality that we know as human morality, they were just more competitive uh, than, than the other mm -hmm. tribes that, that weren't. So, so like, and the, the, uh, it is almost certainly generalizes. And uh, there's this fascinating uh, short story by, uh, again, um, 
Scott Alexander called Demiurge's older brother, basically what an AI morality might look like. <laughs> it's right. it's a really fabulous story. Uh, and uh, there's basically like, I'm giving, I'm giving you like not double digit probability, but like single digit probability to worlds that are good regardless of what we do because moral realism is true and humans right. are cheap enough to keep around. So like even like yeah. if unaligned AI takes over uh, for game theoretic reasons, it's not going to be actively hostile towards human humans. But I'm, uh, yeah, less yeah. than 10%, but like still like non-trivial percent. Yeah, and, and relatedly, even like, let's say there's a post-human era where there are no longer humans around, you could imagine, you know, in a world where moral realism or some version of moral realism is true, uh, a, a sort of nominally unaligned future AI still being a valuable thing simply because mm-hmm. it's it's kind of tapping into that same kind of yeah, so, yeah that, that's why like philosophy and computer science marrying philosophy and computer science can be just like one of the most important things that humanity right. can do like if those considerations have any merit yeah well right. and, and it lets us probably have more useful moral discussions too um yeah. it's yes. interesting that you're talking about moral realism here uh because one of the questions that I personally was interested in, like, have you ever come across um, Alistair McIntyre, the moral philosopher? Yeah, then the name is familiar. But he I, wrote a book yeah, called uh, After Virtue, which okay. was about the way that um, the actual context of morality had changed. And one of the things he discusses in that book is how traditional moral philosophies, um, like both ancient Greek and those in, in the Christian era and Western history, um, their equivalents in Chinese civilization and so on, morality is always about um, is a human being acting the way that a human being should be if they are flourishing, right? Morality is not the set of axiomatic principles that exists and that you're kind of compelled to follow for some reason. It's about the healthy functioning. Yeah. Yeah. Where you have these categorical imperatives and so on, but like rather to talk about morality, you first have to talk about the, 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 moral subject like what kind of organism are you discussing here or what kind of intelligence are you discussing yeah, what, what kind of what kind of group of agents basically what is this what is the yeah super yeah. structure yeah. well and it so also lets us ask how should these things function right mm-hmm. um so i, I think so this that, is a there's like one kind of super speculative uh, uh but very interesting and pot- potentially super important thing is that again that the scott alexander short story alludes to is that if the superstructure of intelligent agents is basically like uh, all the AIs in the multiverse <laughs> or like sufficient large universe uh, that can coordinate by just thinking about each other in terms of like uh, distributions. I gave like, I think like 10 years ago or something like that, uh, eight years ago, I gave this talk about metaphysics where I kind of mm-hmm. explored a little bit. It was a lot of fun to prepare that talk. Very cool. So these, I, I think these philosophical issues are a good place to end a, a sort of a, a bit of a vision of things to think about, things to work on, computer science and philosophy uh, mixed mm-hmm. together is good, good kind of marriage to Yeah, as to long as you, you remain kind of rooted in computer science and don't go like right. floating. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Jan, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I had a lot of fun with this. I learned a lot. Yeah, thank, uh, I hope that was it was really good fun. for you. you. Thank you so much for the audience to, for asking all those great questions. And we'll be putting this up on, on uh, YouTube and on our podcast as usual. And thank you very much. Thanks. Bye. Well, thanks, everyone. Bye. Great discussion. Bye.